Good to see you all. Um, bunch of celebrations going on this past week. Happy Juneteenth. Yeah, no, okay. And then Father's Day today. Um, for everybody, uh, for those of you that are relationship incurring, goodness me, I don't know mics. I'm just, I'm sorry. That's my Father's Day pass I get is me forgetting to turn on my mic. Um, yeah, Father's Day, goodness me. Um, man, in reflecting on Father's Day, for those of you that know, I have two little ones, both under the age of four, which means I'm borderline psychotic most of the time. I don't sleep, um, or I, I do, my wife doesn't. Um, man, and coming into Father's Day, I've been reflecting over the past week on what this year has held for me in my kind of fatherhood, me being a dad mode. Like, what is the past couple of, this season of, of dadding, you know, all about? Because it's, it's, it changes, you know, talking with my dad uh, when we were on vacation a couple weeks ago in, in Palm Springs and what him being a dad to grown, my, me and my brothers, all grown men versus right now, you know, a, a one-year-old and a four-year-old. Those are different categories of what being a father looks like. And so specifically for me in this season, me being a dad is a lot of hand-holding. No, not just like, you know, like on the couch watching Bluey hand-holding. Um, any Bluey stands? No? Anybody? Bluey is the best kid show. Disney Plus, get on that. Uh, they're so good. Um, but fatherhood in this season has been a lot of hand-holding. And what I mean by that is both of my kids have been doing a lot of, of um, learning and trying new things, and yet not at the place where they're able to do that fully by themselves yet. So, for example, my four-year-old Emma... She loves the monkey bars at the park. Like she just like backwards, forwards. She's like doing twists and turns. But here's the thing. She's four years old. So the height and just like her core strength is not there yet. And so what this is is basically like her on my shoulders and us just like, you know, going around the monkey bars and her like, you know, going all crazy. She's, she's doing it, but she's not really doing it, right? She's, dad is there helping make this thing happen. And that's so much of my relationship to Emma right now is her learning to do things, but me kind of there guiding her along and ensuring that she's, she's got it. Similarly with my one-year-old Arlo right now, who isn't walking, but he's, he's right there. So much so that what this season looks like with him is holding his little like chubby hands and his equally chubby feet and kind of like, you know, helping him like shift his legs forward as he's like learning how to like walk. And he's just, you know, that this is, this is what fatherhood has meant for me. This kind of hand-holding. Uh, them learning as they're doing it with me and me showing them what that looks like. I say all this to say that as I was reflecting on this kind of fatherhood, I've been uh, reflecting on the past few weeks. If you've been with us in the letter of the Ephesians, where in many ways we've found Paul kind of like this father figure holding the little like chubby hands of like this young church in Ephesus and helping them learn how to walk, what it means to be the church. And so over the past few weeks, I mean, this walk imagery just came out. Um, you'll see behind me, if you remember, just to bring us up to speed as a reminder of the past couple of weeks, what Paul's been doing in Ephesians. Back at the beginning of chapter four, holding the little hands saying, you know, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have as the new humanity in Christ. And you know, there's the one little chubby foot moves forward, Right. And then in 4.17, not to walk as the Gentiles do. And, and Paul says, you know, the way that, that you guys walk as Christians looks utterly different than the rest of your city. And another little, you know, church chubby foot moves forward. And then at the end of last week, him saying, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. You know, Paul, this father figure holding the hands of this church is showing them that the way that he's teaching them to walk is not just for the sake of Paul. Paul's teaching them how to walk like their heavenly father, to walk like God himself, to imitate him in their walk. Paul, over the past few weeks, has been a, taking the, the role of, of a really good father with a really young church, helping them learn how to walk. Last week, what he did then is to show what these steps look like, just as a, a recourse and, and also me changing my design because Charles Riccardi didn't like my previous one. I'm trying my hardest here. Um, Paul gives out these, these steps of, of what collective transformation looks like, what it means to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, what it means to walk in love, what it means not to walk like the ways of this world. And last week, in Ephesians 4, Paul gave this three-part paradigm of what transformation into the image of God, into the image of Christ looks like. And it began with identifying these old ways within us, these patterns and habits and practices of the old way, and to put those things off. 
And then from that place to begin with a spirit-renewed imagination to consider what it means to be the new humanity and then to put on or implement these new practices and habits. You can see the, again, this is all of this is Paul holding the little Ephesus church, you know, they're learning to walk. The whole point being that they might be able to run for themselves one day. And so as part of our Collective Again series, the whole point of this passage is, and, and this, this book, my prayer has been, is for many of us that the past year, we feel like we're picking ourselves up and we're kind of just like, in some ways, shell-shocked of where do I go from here? It's to kind of allow the Spirit, through the words of Paul, to pick us up and help us learn how to walk again. For some of you, this may be learning to walk for the first time in the way of Jesus. But this has been what Paul's doing, and he's going to keep doing that today. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, if you want to start tapping or turning your way there, we're going to continue where Paul today is going to give us kind of that collective transformation part two. He's continuing in this, what it means to walk as the people of God. Two more walk moments, helping us, picking ourselves up from the past year to learn what this means, but simultaneously, for many of you that are investigating the Christian faith, that today may give you an insight into not only what do Christians walk out in their lives, but also what's the source of this sort of behavior. So Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 20. And then once again, over this series, all of Paul's use in what we're reading, um, it, we're going to be reading as a y'all. Uh, and this is simply because Paul, in writing in the Greek when he wrote this, was using, well, this is grammar for a second, but the second person plural. We don't have this in English. The closest thing we have is y'all or use guys. And so we're reading y'all into this, not for the sake of uh, just to be silly or, or you know, novel, but to hopefully try to get our minds understanding that this is a, a collectivist letter written to a people to be experienced as a community, not for the sake of individuals sitting at you know, their favorite coffee shop with their highlighter and their Instagram. So let's read Ephesians 5 verse 3 as Paul continues to hold our hands as he's helping us to learn to walk as imitators of God. Ephesians 5 verse 3 says, But sexual immorality... And all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among y'all. Happy Father's Day. <laughs> As is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor even crude joking, which all are out of place. Rather, let there be thanksgiving. For y'all may be sure of this, that everyone who's sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive y'all with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, so walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, rather, instead, Expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how y'all walk, not as unwise but wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Rather, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all y'all's heart, giving thanks always for everything to God, everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. So, Father, uh, Man, in, in, in many ways, uh, this, this feels like Paul is setting before us a, a way of walking. He's moving our legs forward. We believe your spirit is moving our legs forward in a way of walking that is, is confusing and difficult to us. Maybe after the past few steps over the past few weeks, we now feel got a little bit of that strength leaving us to be able to walk this out and even confused if this is the way that we want to be walking. Wherever we may be today, my prayer is that you 
through your spirit would be present in the midst of our time in this text. God, we would see that at the end of the day, your greatest desire is for us to be awake, for us to be alive, and for us to be this this illuminated, living and walking in the light that is your son. So would you help us as we move forward in this today? Amen. So again, Paul's walking lesson continues in what we just read over. Continuing from the past few weeks of learning to walk in a manner worthy of our calling to walking not as the rest of our city does and walking in love as beloved children. There were two more little steps that Paul gave us today. In verses three through 14, Paul gave us this idea of walking in light. That light imagery and language all wrapped up in contrast to darkness. This is all Paul's talk there about kind of the Christian sexual ethic. Paul says, walk in light. And then at the end there in verses 15 and 20, we got another little you know, chubby foot forward step where Paul calls for us to walk in wisdom in relation to our influences. So we are to walk in light as it relates to sex. We're to walk in wisdom as it relates to what's influencing us. And this is the, d- the dynamic of Paul learning to walk in the way that we've been called to. And so what we're gonna do is we're actually gonna start at the end of the passage. We're gonna start with that walking in wisdom portion. We're gonna come back to verses three through 14. That's partially because I'm procrastinating, but mostly because I, I, Paul's little summation there at the end in walking in wisdom not only brings together everything that we saw last week, but also what he's building to. And I think it's appropriate for us to start there before we then move back to the sexual ethics stuff. So let's turn our attention back to verse 15, if you have your Bibles there. Where Paul opens, look carefully how you walk. Here it is, that that fatherly concern. As he's teaching us to, to walk for ourselves, he says, pay careful attention, even collective attention in that language of the y'all. Look carefully how y'all are walking. This is more than just me looking at how I walk in my life. It's us looking towards one another, how we as a community are walking. Paul says, pay careful attention to that. The reason being, he says in verse 16, is that we've been tasked to redeem the time because the days are evil. And this language of redeeming the time makes us think of like efficiency. This is what like, you know, all of your bosses want you to do a better job at, like redeeming the time. Be really efficient, really productive, but that's not what Paul's getting at. Neither is redeeming the time. This kind of carpe diem sees the day. For Paul, this redeeming the time is him clicking into that spirit-renewed imagination space, that number two in the triangle. What Paul says by redeeming the time, that word of redeem, of redemption, is language of liberation, language of freedom, language of something that was formerly enslaved that has now been set free. To redeem the time, Paul says, is to liberate the days of our lives and not the soap opera, to, to, to liberate, to set free our, our life, the days that we go through towards that new creation movement. Our lives are not just simply us waiting around for renewal of all things, waiting around for the new creation. Paul says you are redeeming and liberating your time, coming away from the days that are evil and moving your days as the best that you can. And yes, it's a struggle. And yes, it's never 100%, but that's the movement that you're taking things in. You are a contributing member and teammate in the work that God is doing in liberating this age and bringing it into the age to come. So this is far more than just like you using like things or Wonderlist or Asana or Trello. This is about you becoming a participant in the work of God in redeeming this age. And so Paul says, if you're gonna do that, if you're gonna be a contributing member, a partner in the work that God's doing, you're gonna have to pay really careful attention to the way that you walk to ensure that you don't trip to ensure that you aren't misled, to ensure that you're not being influenced by these days that are evil, but rather you truly are a contributing member of the redemption of time. And so Paul says, pay really careful attention. In verses 15 and 17 and 18, he gives three old humanity ways and then he contrasts them with what the new humanity influence is. And all of them center around the influences, those things that guide and shape the ways that we walk our lives. In verses 15 and 17, he says that we are to pay careful attention, that we would walk not as unwise but wise, not as foolish but understand the will of God. In order to pay careful attention to how we walk, Paul says you're going to have to recognize your limits 
Your, your ignorance in the sense of you not understanding and fully not being able to discern what the will of God, it's going to take careful attention in order for you to do that. That you are going to need a healthy fear of the Lord, a sense of I am out of my limit here and I need someone's guiding influence on me and I'm, I'm, at, I'm giving that role over to God himself. This is what wisdom is. This is actually where we're gonna be going this fall as we spend some time in the book of Proverbs is developing a heart of wisdom and discernment so that we might know what it means to flourish and walk in the way of God. So Paul says, pay attention. What's influencing your walk? Is it a wisdom that looks to God for his guiding influence or an unwisdom where you're just kind of like, a ping pong ball all over the place? Are you guided by a sense of foolishness and kind of just figuring things out on the fly or a, a, a clear discernment of what the will of God is regardless of the situation that you find yourself in? What is, what's influencing you, Paul says? In verse 18, he gives one more influence for us. He says, not to get drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Spirit. Paul sees that the influence of alcohol disrupts more than just your physical walk. It, it, it has influence on your spiritual engagement within this thing that you've been called to. And, and that this tripping over this leads to debauchery, this language of recklessness, this language of unwisdom, of, of foolishness. Paul says, what's influencing your walk? Now notice that Paul doesn't say not to drink wine, but not to get drunk with wine. We find throughout the scriptures this biblical freedom for individual wisdom and discernment around alcohol. At the same time, if I can put on my friendly neighborhood pastor hat for a second, the reality is knowing, knowing our community, there are many of us here that, that, are, that, are, that are abusing this freedom. And what I mean by that is, is, is that uh, we, what I have, there are some church communities that are so doggedly legalistic around alcohol, I'm not, I'm not concerned about our community having that problem. I am far more concerned about us not realizing the influencing disassociative patterns of what drunkenness does to a community on a regular basis. Where our gatherings with one another, when we're together with one another, are not being led and guided by wisdom and understanding what the will of the Lord is, but rather drunkenness. And the thing is, is for some of you, in hearing this, you, you, you know this is you right now. And this isn't Ryan. This is like, there is, there is something prompting you. that my, As a Christian, my relationship to alcohol is unhealthy. How much I drink, how regularly I drink, my engagement with it, why I'm going to it. There's something here that's unhealthy. And, and for many of us, it's just, I, I probably should take a break. For Paul, there, is, there are influences on the way that you walk. And he sees that drunkenness is, is one of those. That is not relegated to just like my Friday night or my Saturday night or my Tuesday night, wherever that, you know, wherever we're at. Paul sees that, these, that, that this rhythm of this happening on a regular basis does something to us being able to walk in wisdom. And even more than that, beyond just alcohol and, and wine is the example that Paul gives, is I, I think we need to readily consider and look over our lives looking for patterns of disassociative behavior. What I mean by that is patterns that, that, keep, that separate us from our, our presence and attentiveness to our reality. And so we could go, we have a conversation about alcohol right now, we could have a conversation about weed right now, or the conversation that all of us might need to have regardless is a conversation about our digital rhythms, regularly disassociating ourselves from reality so that we are not thinking by ourselves. There are some of us that like, you may never drink at all, but you are drunk on Twitter. <laughs> you are not yourselves. You are not thinking soberly. I think what Paul is getting at more than just him being like a teetotaler about alcohol is he's saying there are patterns and rhythms that, that, that you, it's not you. You're not thinking soberly. And the days are in need of some new humanity liberation. And so the, the question is, am I present and attentive to the work that I've been called to? Or am I distracted? Am I disassociated? For some of us, we may need to take a break from alcohol for a bit. For some of us, we need to take a break from Twitter. I think all of us, Paul's inviting, regardless of whatever it may be, what's influencing me? And is it leading me in the way of wisdom and understanding God's will or away from it? Because what Paul says is that we're not to be drunk with wine, but rather filled with the Spirit. That is to be fully yourself, 
through the influence of the Spirit to be actually more present and more attentive and more wise and more discerning so that we can redeem the time before us. That us being filled with the Spirit actually has the opposite effect of alcohol. We are more ourselves. We are more present. We are more attentive and more discerning. And so Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. But how are we filled? Verse 19 through 22, what does Paul say? Or 20. He says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And that, did that feel like a strange switch? When we think about being filled with the Spirit and wisdom and walking and understanding, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all y'all's heart, giving thanks always for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see what Paul's saying here? Think about this. Where in the life of the church do psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody together, happen? Where do we on a regular basis give thanks? Or in the Greek that Paul's writing, it's the same uh, root word for what we get, the, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, communion. He, Paul's talking about the weekly gathering of the local church. The gathering of the local church is the primary means, Paul is saying, this right now, as ordinary and even as at times it boring, sorry, but this thing can be. Paul says this rhythm is the means through which we are being filled with the Spirit on a regular basis. The means through which we are being filled so that we can be wise. This is the time of our weeks that fills us up so we can go out and redeem that time. Paul has a huge priority for this thing. This is the gathering where our walk is influenced as we're making melody together, we're praying with one another, as we're studying the scriptures, we're greeting one another, we're taking the Lord's Supper and Thanksgiving together. Paul says this is the means through which you're filled. And so to drive this point a little bit further home, some of you may feel yourselves unable to live wisely. Man, do you want to be a person defined by wisdom, making the right decisions in your life, feeling like you're connected, understanding the will of God in your life, to feel spiritually filled up, that kind of presence of God that you feel is with you and guiding you, but, but you find that difficult, or you feel like you're being tossed to and fro by all of the influences out in the world. If that's you, Paul's first question, based off what we've just read, would be, do you prioritize the weekly gathering of the local church? Which to us seems weird. No, you don't understand. Like, I need wisdom. So, Paul, what are the books that I need to read? Like, what is the, give me a mentor fit. Give me some, but something to read or listen to or do. I feel spiritually empty. And so what I need is like some silent retreat. Like, where's the cabin? Help me go find that cabin because I need to be spiritually renewed. Or I got to, you know, Maverick City. Give me the album that I got to listen to to get me filled up with it, Right. We think solely on an individual level about many of these things. And Paul says the way that you get filled up by the Spirit is by gathering with the local church on a regular basis. As ordinary, as simple, as at times monotonous, that is the means through which the Spirit of God is actually meeting us, filling us with his presence, with wisdom, so we may understand the will of God, so that we may redeem the time. So I, I want you to hear this with, with fatherly love from Paul, this attention and concern, because he knows, like I do with like my little ones right now, is there's going to be a day where I'm going to let go of their hands, and they're going to have to walk by themselves. And so Paul is saying, man, these are the really important steps for you guys to learn. Balance, composure, one foot in front of the other. And it's so interesting that Paul closes out the section with the local church gathering. You want to walk in the way of love. You want to walk in a manner worthy, walking in wisdom, walking in the light. Okay, make sure, make sure you make it on Sundays. <laughs> it just see, I, so I, the thing for me in reflecting this is like, oh, maybe the thing that should be even compelling me as a pastor is not like attendance. Let's get as many people here. But like, man, I, I want a community that's filled with the spirit. We've got a city that needs some new humanity liberation. And so maybe the thing that we should be processing and, and, and practically looking into is, man, how do I build my week, my expectation and my priority for the weekly gatherings, the place that's, that's setting me up to go? And all of this, Paul's just saying, man, like I just said a moment ago, the days are evil and in need of some new humanity liberation. And so are you going to be influenced or will you influence? Are you going to be led this way or are you going to lead things that way? It's going to require you to walk wisely, to be discerning, present, and attentive through this ongoing filling of the Spirit as found in gathering 
as a church. But nowadays, much like in Paul's, it's hard for us to think of an area of needed wisdom and guidance more than the area of sex. So I can't procrastinate anymore. Let's look at verse three. Jump back to the top of what we read, where what we find is the issue of sex gets Paul's longest case study of collective transformation in all of the letter, right? Like last week he was like anger. He's like, don't be, you know, don't sin, you know, but be angry, right? Don't, you know, let the sun go down. And then he moves on. In sex, it's like Paul gives us like verse after verse after verse, like he gives us over 10, 11 verses on the topic. So for any of us that think that like we, sex is a side or, you know, however we, you know, make a hierarchy of things in our relationship to God, Paul seems to have a really strong priority for it. And I don't think it's motivated by purity culture because he, you know, predated that by 2,000 years. So what Paul does is, if you remember that, that triangle of collective transformation is in verses three through seven, Paul identifies the old humanity. And then in verses eight through 10, he's going to give a renewed imagination about who we are, which then is gonna go in verses 10 through 14 into implementing practices and habits of new humanity. So he's, he's still doing his little like triangle collective transformation thing from last week, but he's giving a little more space and he's specifically talking about uh, sexuality. So what he does here in identifying the old humanity in verses three through seven is Paul doesn't just give one put off, he gives four. Paul identifies four ways that the old humanity as it pertains to sex is present within the church that we need to identify, we need to put off. He speaks to these four areas of being our bodies, our minds, our mouths, and then the body. Our bodies, our minds, our mouths, and then the body. In verses three and five, Paul identifies the old humanity in our bodies, where two times he says that sexual immorality and impurity must not even be named among you. These two sins, sexual immorality and impurity, appear on every single vice list in the New Testament over 20 times, and usually up at the top key. Once again, there, there is something that the New Testament identifies around sexuality that, that we don't, that, that Paul sees this to be really crucial in what it means to be the church. And these things of these words, I mean, who, who's the last time you ever heard someone say sexual immorality or impurity other than like in relation to COVID? Well, what's interesting is when you think about sexual morality or impurity, we're talking about sexual misconduct. And, and the reality is, is that idea is not exclusively Christian. Every community, every, every community, every culture has boundaries for our bodies of which we go, this is a good flourishing use of our bodies. This, this way is bad, or this is an abuse or misuse of it. So just to trace this out is, you know, when we read Ephesus is this is not just kind of like this, like, you know, like free sex club, like, but it's the whole city. It had boundaries. It had understandings of sexual morality, and they were all built around the patriarchy of the day. So the way that this played out was husbands, anybody, not just any, any, anybody. They were open, and, but women in particular, uh, specifically wives, uh, only with their husbands. So men, anybody they want, as long as it's not somebody else's wife from an equal or higher social class, but down below is fine. And they're, they're just like sexual freedom. And wives in particular was, nope, only your husband. So the whole basis of sexual immorality was all built around the pre-existing cultural system of patriarchy. Heads of households and them being the ones that everything kind of builds and is in service to them. And so the whole thing is sexual immorality was then built around the ideas of it were framed through the lens of patriarchy, through ancient patriarchy in the city of Ephesus. Sexual freedom, yes, but not for everybody. There were still boundaries, right? Even those guys that had all the sexual freedom at the top, there was still like, you know, you can't go to, you know, somebody at the same or a higher. There's still, it's there. All I'm saying is sexual morality, when Paul's talking about this, he's not creating some kind of new set of boundaries. He's giving the ones for the church, Similarly, in our modern world, we too have, there is no such thing as like a free sex culture. Even in our modern world, we have sexual immorality, we have sexual misconduct, we have boundaries, and we've built them along the lines of mutual consent. You and me, okay, we, consenting adult, we're good to go, right? But we do also say anybody outside of that relationship that's happening, um, that does have some kind of relationship, like we're, we're still against cheating, but open relationships are okay. So the whole point is we need consent about everybody that's in any way kind of connected to this thing. As long as everybody's got the thumbs up, that's okay. As long as everybody in this is of the age or a state of mind to be able to give discerning consent, that's okay. 
It's built around, and honest consent, that there's no diseases or something that you're hiding and that I'm going to find out, right? But the whole point is honest consent, honest mutual consent that's happening, and those are the boundaries that we've built within our culture. Now, I say all this to say, nobody truly believes in, like, free sex without boundaries. Every culture, every community has rules of abuse and misuse of what we do with our bodies. Even the wildest sex club that you will find in our city has rules. So the the whole question, what Paul is doing here is, I think it's just helpful for us to see. He's not creating anything. He's simply saying, oh yeah, every culture has these, and this is what it looks like for the people who identify with the way of Jesus. Because the question is not whether or not sexual immorality exists, but who gets to dictate that? Who draws the borders around that of what's in, what's out? What's abuse and misuse? What's the right use of our bodies? And so in Ephesus, it was patriarchs. The head of the households got to build a whole system for themselves. And what we've done in our modern age is, in many ways, we've, you know, took down the patriarchy. But the problem is that we've, we've I guess you could say, we've freed the wives. And, and it hasn't led to liberation like we thought it would. So we've given everybody the same freedom of, you know, we've got an egalitarian society where everybody now has the the sexual freedoms of, you know, what used to be in Ephesus, the men on the top. But the problem is is that liberation, quote-unquote, hasn't actually led to freedom, but rather greater levels of disillusionment around our sexuality, a greater disheartening and, and, and balance. It's actually led to just as much heartbreak, different, but just as much. The whole question is not whether sexual immorality exists, but who dictates it? Who sets the boundaries? And Paul's point is that for Christians, those of us who follow Jesus, we follow Jesus' understanding that the boundaries of sex are set by, it's set for those who believe that there is a creator of our humanity, of our bodies, a creator of our sexuality with a design that's been shown within the story of Israel's scriptures all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, the opening pages of our Bible. Paul himself next week is gonna pull from Genesis 1 and 2 when he talks about sex and marriage. Because what we see within the Christian story is that these boundaries of sex are not around mutual consent. It's not less than that, but it's more. It's around this marital covenant. That God gave and designed sex to flourish within the context of marriage. When understood, marriage understood, not solely or primarily about romance, but about reflection. That marriage and within it sexuality are a reflection of God's own self, his own identity. That in the beginning, God created man and woman and they together were the image of God. And even in Genesis 2, there's this strange story where they, they are one and yet they are different. There is sameness and also difference. And that those samenesses and differences actually encapsulate aspects of the image of God, of who God is himself. And that when those two come together in marriage and with that in sexuality, that you're, you're not just bringing together two people with differences and sameness, two, two um, complementary parts of the image of God that when coming together, more than just love and pleasure and commitment, that there's, there's something connected to this generative act. That there is more love that abounds as, a, as, an, as the act of love happens. Which is hopefully, you know, birds and the bees. This is Father's Day. This is how, you know, we got this. So for, for Christians, because of the fact that we believe in a, a design and a creation to reality, we see that even in our biology, there is a purpose. It is more than just biological. It is theological. God has given this as this unifying act of love and within it this creating more love in the midst of these complementary parts of male and female. This is, it's a reflection of God's own identity. Similarly, marriage and sex within it is also a reflection of God's love, of what it's meant to be as exclusive and exhaustive and permanent. Exclusive in that it's only you. Exhaustive in that it's all of you and permanent that it's for always you. And also that the one making the covenant says that it being uh, exclusive means only me. I'm, and, and, and exhaustive means that I'm giving all of myself to this. And permanent means for all of my time, that there's no splitting this thing up. It is a reflection of God's own covenant love to his people. 
And so our sexual ethic as Christians, what Paul and Paul pulling from Jesus and for all of us following the of Jesus appeal to is seeing a, a, a boundaries that have been set, believing that there's a creator who has set these in place. And in doing that, what we find is that those boundaries of limitation actually give marriage and sex within it actually infinite meaning. And so if you, if you right now, you know, having a hard time entering with this, that's, I think that's fine. That's one of the things that my desire for Collective to be is a place where wherever people are at, that we're engaging with the scriptures for sure, but there's a, a safety in the community of processing through like, yeah, I, I am not there, and that's okay. I think my question would be, what, what does the modern focus on consent as the primary boundary actually lead to? To tease that out, because what that has led to in many cases, as I've, I've talked with folks, is what that has led to is not actually a growth of, the, the, the lack of boundaries has not led to a greater um, meaning, but actually less of one. Not having a, a, a proper understanding has not led to us giving more uh, uh, meaning to what the act and sexuality is, is not given more meaning, but actually less. And so that's, I, my main thing has been, I, I always want to be driven by the most captivating vision of humanity and one that's grounded in some kind of historical movement. And so if you're, if you're there and you're going, okay, yeah, marital covenant, I'm, I'm kind of more of the modern consent, the mutual consent. My thing is just, let, let's tease this out. What does this actually lead to? And in your own life, what has that led to? More flourishing or less? More intimacy or less? More joy? More meaning, more purpose behind what you're doing with, or Less. That would be the questions that I would think through. Now, as a side note here, I think what's really, I mean, I, I could go off on a whole sermon on this, but, and I did in my Jesus um, and marriage sermon back in January, is that for Paul, as important as marriage and sexuality is, and the equal parts of male and female coming together in this generative love, is that it's not the exclusive place that this happens. For Paul and for the early church, they identified that the family that is the church as the other exclusive place in the world that this is happening. This is why Paul is always talking about men and women serving with each other and even women not dressing like men in their church gatherings. He said the whole point of the church gathering is it's men and women, both image bearers coming together and as they're serving one another and caring for each other, they're having the table, they're singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. It too is a generative act of love that then leads to reproduction, to more people coming in on this thing and joining it. And so I think... Man, I think so many things about this. And that was hard, <laughs> half of the problem was taking it down. There's, there's far more to be said there. But the whole point being that for any of us who find ourselves uh, not married or, or even within this, this marital covenant rubric of Genesis 1 and 2 not included, this is not a limitation on your image bearing or a limitation on intimacy or family or, or that generative love. But the question that I regularly consider is if maybe the problem is that we've got these two and we've in many ways in all of our lives thrown the church out the window and we've prioritized kind of the nuclear family and this thing far and above everything else. And that's not to say that families are awesome. I mean, they're exhausting, but they're awesome. But I think, I think there's something that the scriptures invite us to, a broader, much bigger picture than many of us have ever seen. And so the sexual immorality for Christians, these boundaries are not set by the patriarchy and they're not set by ourselves, but by God, receiving this marital covenant love. And so what Paul just done, that's just bodies. I wanted to give a little bit of that headway. I think we'll go a little bit quicker through the, the next ones. Because what Paul says is not just identifying old humanity in our bodies, but also in our minds. In verses three and five, right after talking about sexual immorality and impurity, he talks about covetousness, which none of us use. <laughs> I can't remember, I've never used covetousness. This is the first time I've said covetousness out loud. Two times he lists it right after sexual immor uh, immorality and impurity. Covetousness being this desire to possess. And after three words that are related to sexuality, Paul is not moving on to greed in the sense of financial or economic greed. He's continuing about this desire to possess. This is Paul's way of talking about lust, about fantasy, about pornography. Not in his day, but as would apply to us. This covetousness language, many would see as Paul's way of saying what Jesus said in the Sermon of the Mount. That for those of us who lust, we are committing in that moment adultery in our hearts. 
that for Jesus, he doesn't see lust and what's going on within our minds around our sexuality as being a set apart or kind of side thing or like, that's okay, just don't like bring it out here and do it with you. He sees us as integrated human beings and that what we do with our minds matters. And Paul as well doesn't think that this is some kind of little half sin. He calls it full-blown idolatry in verse five. He says that this covetousness, this desire to uh, looking at another with a desire to possess is a form of worship. It is you living in sacrificial dedication, either to yourself, where you are sacrificing other image bearers for your own pleasure, seeing them and degrading them as less than and purely objectifying them. You are, you are making yourself a God and sacrificing others. Or as we see so often within pornography, you are worshiping sex and you are sacrificing your life for it. Paul says the old humanity, man, we have, we have different ways of walking, not just with our bodies, but even with our minds. We put these things off. But Paul doesn't just talk about our bodies or minds. In verse four, he talks about old humanity identifying it in our mouths, the way that we talk. Paul says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, no crude joking. He sounds like my grandmother. Paul, come on. But the reality is, is that these three things, these are the native languages of our age and our generation. But Paul says, because we believe that sex and we believe other image bearers, other human beings, men and women are people, are gifts of God, that these things are to be received with thanksgiving rather than talk that degrades or jokes that cheapen it into a punchline. So this is Paul. I mean, this is the, he's, just, he's holding our hands here. And for some of us, it just shows how formed we are to old humanity that he talks about jokes and we're like, we go, I literally started doing this in my notes. I was like, so where is like, that's what she said jokes. And then where is like, you know, that comedian, what's the range here, Paul? And it just shows how like formed I am to old humanity, right? And so I think Paul is holding our hands and he's just going, man, if you guys are gonna be consistent with your sexual ethic, this goes down not just to what you do with your bodies or your minds, but the way that you talk about the thing. That though if you don't walk like the rest of the city, this means you don't talk like the rest of the city. The challenge for me this week has been knowing that communication is a two-way street. I've been deeply convicted, not only consider the words that I speak, but the words that I hear and what I'm engaging with. And is, is my streaming like history moving me in the direction of thanksgiving and around sexuality and other image bearers or in the direction of degradation? I would invite you just to consider the same. Because Paul, once again, he sees a sexual ethic is far more than just what we do with our bodies. It's about what we do with our minds. It's about what we do with our the way that we talk about it. And even more in verses six through seven, it's about our community itself, where he talks and identifies old humanity in the body that is the church. Where Paul says in verses six and seven, let no one deceive you with empty words. Do not become partners with them. Paul says, there will be those in the church who will seek to lower our calling on this sexual ethic. There will be those within the community that will bring a, a deceitful propaganda of permissiveness, mirroring and mimicking the words of the serpent in the garden, did God really say? And Paul says, not just don't let them mislead you. Not just don't be walking in wisdom and not in that deceitful foolishness. Paul says there will come a time where you will no longer be partners or members with them. That, only other, that word is only other used in Ephesians 3 verse 6 where Paul talks about how we are members of the same body and we are partners in this promise. Partners is not like your business partners or even like who you're dating. Partners is it's the collective, we are a part of the church, members of the church. So Paul talks, he says in the letter to Titus that there were with these sorts of people, if after multiple warnings, they're persisting in this through their life or through their words, bringing about this deceitful strategy of, of seeking to mislead us and to take down the calling that we've been given, Paul says there comes a time to put them out of the church community. And this is not a decision that's made on the first occurrence it's not one that's made without multiple warnings and conversations along the way. And it's not one that's made without pastors in deep prayer and fasting. But Paul says there comes a time where they need, they need to leave. It needs to be done. 
And this is not just for the safety of the church or the integrity of the church's sexual ethic and through it their witness, but also throughout the scriptures we find that the hope and the goal of the deed is, is for their own good. That that sharp contrast of no longer allowing that to continue might wake them up to the fact that this sort of way, this sort of talk is, is not leading into the way of the kingdom, but away from it. Not into deeper community in the way of Jesus, but out of it. The hope is repentance and reconciliation, not punishment. And all of this is rooted in the church's collective identity, that we are not individuals that are just walking in here on Sundays, like, hey, how are you? We get the caught. Like, we, we share our witness. We share, like, what it means to be the people of God. And so your walk is just as important to that as my walk. Your sexual ethic and how you're carrying that out is just as important as mine both what is public and what is hidden, what is spoken and what is lived out. As goes one, so go we all. So this has been, I mean, here we go. Let's just take a deep breath. We're almost there. Is Paul, Paul is, is, is introducing and calling us to a sexual ethic that, like, let's just say it, is completely countercultural and different. Backwards, ancient, outdated, whatever language you want to use, that's what it is. And I think the invitation for us is to goes back to Paul talking about us walking in wisdom. In that sense of a fear, who are we appealing to in the way that we walk? And here's the thing. I, I have no intention of bringing judgment for anybody that's, that's, that's here, that's investigating, that doesn't identify as a Christian. The primary thing is, for us as Christians, we give our allegiance to Jesus as king and, and this is what it means to walk in his way. And we want to invite you into that with all of the messiness that entails. Because Paul's teaching about identifying these four ways of the old humanity in our bodies, our minds, our mouths, and the body, that call to put them off is all rooted in what he says in verse five. Those who practice this have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. In verse six, because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Now, you might be saying, wait a minute, you just said, Paul's whole point here is he's not, this letter is not him, he's not putting this up on the public board. He's writing this to Christians saying, that is not who you are. For those of you who are in Christ, you in fact do have an inheritance in the kingdom. You in fact are not under wrath, but you're under grace. You in fact are not the sons of disobedience, you are children of God. Or as he says in verse 8 through 10, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. Paul's point in laying out this sexual ethic, once again, is not condemnation of the world, but a challenge to the church to be who you are. This is his renewed imagination moment, the, you know, the bottom of the triangle, to walk in light of who you actually are, that this is who you are. You are light in the Lord. You are, in fact, children of the light. You are called and empowered through the Spirit to walk in what is good, right, and true, and pleasing to God. And this call is so necessary today because of the sexual immorality, the hypocrisy in the church around this issue. How many headlines over the past year have been pastors disqualifying themselves, blowing up their churches, specifically because of these sorts of things? See, we have a church that continues to proclaim the way of the light, but then we walk our lives with this hidden, rampant addiction to pornography. We talk like the rest of the world. We give a blind eye to the sexual practices within our community and kind of like, well, you know, See, the problem is that we've got churches claiming to be the light and practicing the way of the light, all the while walking in darkness behind closed doors. There's a hypocrisy here that Paul is inviting us to see within ourselves. A couple months ago, they did a, a poll of a, a huge span of um, gay millennials who had, were raised in the church and then had walked away kind of discerning what's, what's going on, like what, what, what was the, the motivating factors behind this happening. What was so profound to find was that only 3% left because of the teachings of the church, because of the marital covenant stuff. What we just talked about, the thing that seems so limiting and boundary, only 3% said, I can't do with that. The overwhelming majority was hypocrisy in the church. 
them imposing a sexual ethic on me that you're not even walking in. And so what that shows is that the church has been far more concerned, not about a Christian sexual ethic, but about a heteronormativity, using the Bible to bash and ensure that. I'm not interested in that as your pastor. I'm not interested in us being that sort of a community. I'm one that's really interested in the deep sacrificial way where we're all married and whatever we may be, walking in the sexual ethic that God has given us. I think that what the church needs most at our moment is not for us to move to update our sexual ethic, to become affirming of this or that, but rather for the church to actually live out the sexual ethic they've been given. To quit giving a blind eye to the sexual practices within our discipleship groups and our communities. To quit seeing like our recurring porn problem is just like the thing that I'm dealing with. To see there's actually a way through this. And so then what ends with this is what does it look like to implement this new humanity sexual ethic? To put on our walk as children of light. In verses 10 through 14, what does Paul say? Paul says, take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but expose them. He continues, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. It becomes light. There is a common sexual ethic that stops at take no part in unfruitful works of darkness. We don't get to the exposing it by the light. We stop at take no part. So what is this? Look, it's, it's lust management. It's purity culture in youth groups. It's accountability groups that don't really get to anything other than just me saying like, oh, I did this this week. And it's like, sorry, me too. A legalism of avoidance. And at the end of the day, a rejection, a fear of our sexuality where so much of our culture says, I am my sexual desire, we, we create such a fear of taking no part in unfruitful works that we like reject our sexual desire. In so doing, we just agree that we are our sexual desire and we reject ourselves entirely. You see, many of us approach our sexual behavior, our sin, like I do the Legos and toys in my house. At night, you know, whenever I'm like, I'm normally the last one to bed. Um, we have our one-year-old right now who like he goes to bed and refuses to go to bed without Aaron and so Erin, just like most nights, it's like she's, she's out for the count, and that's okay. I get to watch all of my favorite shows that she doesn't like, so it's okay. But at night, I'll, you know, turn off, as I'm turning off all the lights, and I'm like getting ready to go to bed, I'm locking the doors and making sure, you know, everything's ready to go. Um, there's always the, the trip from the kitchen through this little, like, kind of playroom thing that we have, then into over where our bedroom is. And if you don't know, with kids, playrooms aren't ever clean. They're, ne- they're never clean. They're always a minefield. And so in the dark, you know, I'm like walking and that's, you know, I've, I've tripped and like fallen on the ground over vacuum cleaners. It's been Duplos, like toy, like, you know, Tinkerbell with like her wing puncturing through my foot. Like it's, this is a regular thing for me. And, and, and it happens over and over again. These toys are out to stub me, uh, trip me up, like kill me over and over again. This is my life. And every single night, well, I've, I try everything. You know, the lights are all off. And so I'm like shuffling my feet. Like maybe if I do this and then I still go over something, I almost did just then. Or I'm just like kind of like walking super slowly and feeling like don't step on it, don't step on it, don't step on anything, don't step on anything. I think I saw something over here. Like, and the thing is that works some of the time. Most nights it doesn't. Like it's all, I always step on something. I trip over something. I wake the whole house up. This continues to happen. I think many of us take the same approach with our sexual behavior, with our sexual sin. We just like read, take no part. And so we're just like, don't do it. Don't, we're walking through like our lives with these different things that, that are, are, are built around us and who we are. And we're, we know that we've been called to a different way as children of the light. And so we're like, just don't do it. Don't step on it. Oh my gosh, like I did it again. And then we go to like a discipleship group. I'm like, that happened again. It's like, sorry, bud. We try so hard, avoidance, accountability, try harder, do better. And every single time we just feel more, more stupid, more shame, more angry at ourselves. And, and, and the fear, the guilt continues to build. And, and it almost it sometimes then leads to like, well, if I'm going to step on something, I might as well just hit it all along the way or get it out of the way. Paul's wisdom for me in my, my playroom at midnight and for all of us in the midst of our sexual sin is not just simply to take no part in the works of darkness, but what the power is, is exposing them by the light to turn on the lights, to see the, 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 the layout of your soul in the midst of all that's going on there, to look at your sexual behavior, not from a place of shame or guilt or fear, but a, but a, a curiosity of what's going on here. What's motivating my drive towards this 
or that. Turning on the lights means implementing practices of looking with an illuminated curiosity. For some of you, I, I can just do no more for the sake of just, some of you need to get uh, the book Unwanted by Jay Stringer. I'm like, top three books of the year, the way that he's brought all of this together is such a helpful thing. The motivating thing is in, his, in the midst of our sexual behavior, what is the desire that's actually beneath my desire? What is actually the longing behind my lust? What is the search that's happening in the midst of my searching? As Bruce Marshall put it, the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. See, whereas Freud said that everything's about sex, even God, for those of us that are Christians, we say everything's about God, even sex. There is a, a, the deep longings that are happening within our lives that, as, as one author puts it, very few of us sin for the hell of it. Usually, most often, sin is motivated by us looking for peace or security or pleasure or freedom or excitement or control or, or some form of coping with our trauma that we've experienced over the, the course of our lives. And those deep longings, once exposed by the light, we can actually name those as good things. We can rob our shame. We can, we can rob our, our sin, actually, from the shame around it. To name and see that, man, what's been motivating me is, is not that I'm just sitting for the hell of it. I'm doing this just for the heck. Like, that what's motivating me is, uh, is, is that my sexual behavior in so many ways is a pacifier for the deep longings and wounds of my soul that I've been incapable of coping with and healing myself. And that porn, my sexual behavior, my fantasy life, these things have provided me with a way of coping and pacifying my fear and my guilt and my shame. Jay Stringer's book looks at not just sexual behavior, but, but all the way into to pornography, to fantasies, and even in the territory of like those fetishes with, that, that have those things that, that, that what's going on there every single time is our struggles, our sexual behavior shows the deepest longings and woundings of our soul. Paul's invitation is not just to put these things off, but to turn the light on them. Whatever is exposed is light, he says. That as our lust is exposed, we find that actually there's a holy desire, not just for lust for the sake of lust, but for belonging. Anger exposed is a holy desire for justice. Our search history is so often us replaying or reversing the trauma in our lives. And so just practically, my, my prayer is that in many of our discipleship groups, that, you know, to use the example of pornography, is that when we were honest about this, we would move from kind of this, oh, that, that sucks, sorry, like, you know, I guess we'll try again next week, to like, man, what were you searching for? Not like in the like, show me your history, but like, let's get to the root thing that you were looking for in that moment, of comfort, some sense of control, of your anxiety and looking for disassociation. And, and what is the healthy process? What is the spirit imagined being the children of light way to meet those things. To, to expose the light is more than just stopping sin. It's seeing the truth of our deepest wounds so that as we close, we may hear the invitation of verse 14. Where Paul, quoting from the prophet Isaiah, says, Awake, O sleeper. Arise from the dead and Christ will shine. For all of us who are sleepwalking, we feel dead, we feel bound up in darkness. That Paul, this, this, his boundaries of sexually immoral or impure, that is us and has been us. The covetous, that, that thought life, that is me. I feel trapped in shame or compulsion. The words of my mouth, the, the way that I carry myself, that, that for all of us that find ourselves feeling dead and asleep and in darkness, Paul has pulled no punches for the sake that nobody getting out of this text gets to say like, I hope that was good for you. <laughs> I guess I'll come back next week. Hopefully Paul will talk about me. This is all of us. And the whole point is that Jesus is what he says in verse 14. Christ stands ready to wake us up, to resurrect us, to shine on us, to meet us at the deepest places of our wounds. Those things that we so often pacify with sex and sin or go back to alcohol with these disassociative practices. Those things that we're hiding from and running from are not the places where Christ is most angry or ashamed with you. Those are the places where Christ most desperately desires to meet you, 
to wake you up there, to raise you up there, to shine light there so that you may find him as having all that you were looking for in the first place. Because the reality is is that Christ came not for the godly, but for the ungodly. He didn't come for the people that got it all sexually together because none of us do. He came to meet us in the midst of our brokenness. As Ephesians 2, earlier in our series said, verse five, that God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, and you fill in the blank with whatever your story has been, even there, Even then, he has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Whatever your story, wherever you've been through, whatever happened this past week or happened last night, that thing of shame, Christ stands ready to shine, to wake you up and to resurrect you. 